Welcome, 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 one and all, big and small. You've reached the podcast known as The Three Carnies. So come on, let's show you around. So it was that the fate of mankind came to rest on the trembling shoulders of the most reluctant of saviors. And welcome everyone to a brand new episode of the Three Carnies podcast. My name is Tana. I'm Jen. And I'm Monica. We are super excited to dig into season two this time, Los Moscos. So to get into what happened in this season's premiere, much like season one, we see a close-up of Samson in the same stark light, giving a monologue about America being corrupted and the fate of mankind being put upon a reluctant hero. We go to Justin, giving a sermon at night. He starts to double over in pain for just a quick moment, then he picks back up and continues on. We see Norman drive up to the United Methodist District Office, and then he collapses, unable to speak before he could get to anyone. We then go see a man putting together a text over a light box. He's listening to Justin over the radio when he realizes what Justin just said is the text he's putting together. All of this happens with Justin's sermon continuing in the background. What do you guys think about this opening segment? Anything stand out? I don't know. I think that the opening season two being a throwback to season one. Um, I get the idea behind it to kind of uh, link the two seasons and everything, but I wish they had went with something else. They have a very creative team and it just didn't grab me in the same way. I don't know if I'm the only one on that one, but that's the thing that struck out to me first. I feel like they're trying to fill in a little bit more of a backstory. Like they're saying the dark one came back over to America, then just from him being there, he caused like the dust bowl so i'm guessing they're talking about like stutter because we knew he was in world one and so when he came back to america then this whole thing started yeah i might agree with jen that i don't know if the opening monologue added that much to it other than me saying oh that's neat it ties the two seasons together but i don't think it had the same impact it did season one like it didn't create a sense of wonder i did love the fact that justin's they had so many kind of short, smaller scenes, but they tied them all together with Justin's sermon, Keep Speaking Through the Background. Any other thoughts on the opening sequence or move on? Justin's sermons over the radio are really mm-hmm. creepy. I really liked that we got to poke our head in and see the the occultist. I believe his name is Talbot Smith. So, And I really liked his little workshop. I just think they did really good set decoration there and I'm really interested in seeing how they would tie him into the series because he seems to be like a normal person who knows about the avatars and that seems really rare that gets me intrigued for that we then check in with what is happening at the carnival everyone is still trying to put out the fire in Appy and Sophie's trailer Jonesy and Sophie crash out Sophie yells and tries to get her mother She is alive, and she can still hear her mother screaming. 
She yells for her to just die, and then it goes silent, and Sophie passes out. We move to management's trailer. Ben has just killed Lowe's. He realizes it is all management's doing. Angrily, he tells management that he's going to turn himself into the others. Management grabs his wrist and gives him a vision of the atom bomb and the preacher. Tells him Scudder was to him what the preacher is to Ben. Ben must bring Scudder to management. If Ben tries to escape his destiny, the world won't escape its terrible fate. So we are still dealing with all the big tragedies that's been happening in Carnival. Thoughts about the scene with Sophie and Jonesy? I thought that was cool that when Sophie says, no, my mother is still in there screaming. And then like the audio just like stills. But then you could hear like the heartbeat, like Apollonia's heartbeat. And then when it stops, that's when she like faints over. And I think that was a really nice touch to indicate that when she's finally dead. What about Ben starting to rebel? It takes place like right where we left off, but you could tell it wasn't filmed away, filmed right away. Sorry, because Ben looks like he's like aged like a year, like he does not look like the same from where we left him. And I also think they realized they needed to get the plot moving. So then there's just like a huge exposition dump, which is fine. It's just like a lot like at once so we figure out what the end game is supposed to be which is prevent the trinity bomb test and to kill the usher of destruction who is justin so not only is he the dark avatar but he's like the big final boss avatar so and i think by killing loads ben is supposed to pick up more knowledge or history or something because he seems, I don't know, a bit more martyr once that happens. Yeah, I'm with you, Tana, like on the info dump kind of thing. Like the beginning pieces of this episode just feel like making up for time. And it's it's not as grabbing. Because one of the things I really liked about season one was how much the actors could do a lot with so few words or so little direction and just let the scene take on life in itself. But then in the trailer just was like, oh goodness, <laughs> we're we're having a monologue a bit. And then I always question management because they just they're slimy. <laughs> I don't know a better way to say it. They're just shady and it's really hard to go from secret, dark, mysterious management to oh no, I'm I'm championing the world. I'm altruistic. <laughs> It's just the juxtaposition with so much. It just felt a little out of sync when watching it for me. Yeah, I don't know if I maybe should have re-looked to see the ending, you know, with of last season with Ben killing Scudder. Or not Scudder, but Loads. But it seemed very quick turn of the switch where he figured management, pulled the strings on everything where last episode he was just angry and killed loads then all of a sudden he's oh no management manipulated it there wasn't even time for him like putting the pieces together yeah like suddenly we just know that management is the russian that's been in ben's dreams the whole time somehow (laughs) yeah oh also i read that there was supposed to be another like vision here and 
apparently it's a vision of Ben having a carnival justice for killing Lowe's or something. And he asks for the number six. He doesn't want any mercy. But I think even if he does pick six, it's he's not going to die. Like, you can't just take them out. I didn't mean to look up how long of a difference it was between filming the end of season one and season beginning of season two because I also noticed what you noticed too of like holy Beckett Ben looks like he aged like in two years he definitely all of a sudden looked more like a grown-up yeah I think he looks a lot more attractive this season too are you trying to say you don't dig the up for six seven days Ben as much as now Ben yes (laughs) I guess we all have our tastes controversial statement tina ruthie would not agree (laughs) yeah i think the management ben stuff was lacking but especially in comparison to the sophie appy scene that happened right before it kind of highlighted there was heart in that one and then in the next one eh. i think it could have been pretty cool because this is the last we see of appy and we know the idea why she did what she did if we had a little bit different of a send-off because we see it completely from Sophie's perspective. And so it's emotional in that way. But I really liked Abby's character for her to perish off screen. It's just I wasn't ready to say goodbye is all. So next we go back to the preacher. He is walking up to a tree under the fiery red sky. We've seen him in his dreams. The tattooed man is there, and he slashes Justin's hand. Justin wakes up from that dream and catches a look under Iris's skirt. Iris looks him straight in the eye and does not cover up. He then gets up and walks out. Then we see him enter another house of an Asian woman's. Do you guys have any thoughts on this short scene? The scene with him under the tree with the tattoo man. So the tattoo man has has been like just like a placeholder for what the Usher of Destruction is supposed to be. And in that scene, he's supposed to realize that it's him. And then I also noticed when he cuts his hand, uh, there's blue blood. And in this scene, it's sparkling a little, which I think is weird because when we revisit blue blood later this season, it's not. But I, I think they just had a hard time trying to make it sparkle or glow or something oh yeah i saw i heard watched an interview with daniel knopf where he said they couldn't like the blue blood was such a pain in the ass they gave up on it is there any is there significance to color, the color blue or is just okay we want to signify that this is a special there is significance but we can get into that later when it's addressed in the season okie doke artichoke so back at the carnival side of things We see Samson wrapping up loads in carpet. Management is giving him instructions to deceive the cop. To get him to believe Ben died in the fire and to use Appy's body and say it's Ben. Samson is angry about this idea since Appy was family, but he goes along with it. He is also to keep Ben away from the trailer. Ben tempts management too much. In the morning, Ben and Samson ditch Lode's body in a pit. Samson mentions if anyone's going to pick a number over it, it'll be Samson. Ben says that's not fair. Samson says, nope, it ain't. 
So what do you guys think about management kind of ignoring Samson throughout the end of last season and all of a sudden Samson's back to being his best bud? It's a relationship out of convenience. Management needs someone to do dirty work and Samson wants to protect the carnival. So it sucks, but it fits. And I think neither of them, like they've been together so long, neither of them feel like they have to justify things. There's still that friction because they're coming from two different places, but ultimately they have this tenuous agreement. I wish Samson fought a little bit, like fought back and be like, no, I'm not doing whatever you say. But I think I like your point about him just trying to protect the carnival and all his people. Yeah, my honestly, I understand that. My only gripe was, why are they disposing the body in a, in a ditch? And then Nick takes his shirt off. And I'm like, what? I get the idea. Okay, you've got to ditch this evidence. But come on, what do you think is going to happen? From season one to season two, we noticed that some of the, I guess, recurring characters have actually left the show. So I guess they could have easily said, oh, since Gecko and the twins left, maybe Loads went with them or something like that. Just playing off that he just left the carnival and not that he's dead or specifically he was murdered. Yeah, that would have been good. Yeah. All right. How do you think Ben tempts management? I don't know. To use his powers for bad? I don't know. Like, I wasn't really into that line, period. I It just felt like a plot device to bring Samson back into the fold as a character that had something to do. I don't know. I see it as, like, management is protected when he's behind the scenes and pulling strings and what have you. And Ben makes him want to assert his power, makes him want to get back in the ring. And that might not be the wisest course of action for him. Yeah, I had something like similar written down. Management knows like uh, what the end game is and what's supposed to be happening. And Ben has been pretty reluctant up until this point. Maybe he just feels maybe he should override Ben so he could just do what needs to be done. But management doesn't really have a capable body as Ben does, I guess. Since Ben's supposed to be the last one, it wouldn't really be right. Mm, yeah. The other thing I, I had a thought of, so like earlier when he gave the vision to Ben about like the end and what we have to do, what we have to do, I wonder if it's also like something as simple as that killed his energy and maybe he's also conserving. He wants to live a long life and maybe it's kind of self-preservation too. Yeah, that makes sense. We go back to the preacher's world. Norman is in the hospital from a stroke and can't speak. The bishop is there praying and spending time with Norman. Iris and Justin come in and the bishop asks Iris to step out so he can talk to Justin privately. He informs Justin that he got a letter from Norman saying he thought Justin was possessed. They talk in guilty tones about not being there for Norman when he had a mental breakdown. Norman is lying there hearing everything they say. Thoughts on this interaction? Just, it didn't seem like the smart move, in a sense. And maybe that's just how impossible the superstition could be. That, oh, this person's obviously went crazy. And then I'm going to talk to about the center of their crazy. But actually, I had went a different way with it, to be honest. Although I will say Norman and like his 
he was like the new Apollonia sense because he couldn't move, but how, what he did with his eyes and everything was, was really great. But I just thought it was weird that we would want to address the letter directly with Justin. Yeah. But Justin, boy, he knows how to play his cards. Like he knows how to lean into the, yes, I'm so concerned. I feel terrible that I wasn't there for him. He's really good. I wrote that Justin says it never should have come to this. And I think he means it. If Norman had killed him, like he said, he wouldn't have had to retaliate because now Norman knows what's going on and is going to tell others. So Justin's going to have his health fail and make him sound like he's crazy or something. That's a good call out about Justin saying it never should have come to this. Like it's another example of those moments where he's telling the truth, but no one quite gets the context he is particularly speaking about. So the cop does come back to the carnival and is talking to Jonesy and Samson is saying that Ben died in a fire and they have the bones to prove it. The cop walks off and Jonesy is pissed that Samson lies about Appy's body. She is family. Rita Sue and Felix talk about how the show is going to go on tonight in the mess tent. And Jonesy checks on Sophie and tries to leave before she wakes up. Sophie wakes up and then calls to him and apologizes crying. He tells her, that's the problem. The whole goddamn worry is sorry and it just doesn't change anything. Jonesy tells her to just keep walking when she sees him. And Sophie cries more. This is the first point of the episode where I am just completely captivated the way they did that scene and how Sophie responded. It was so hard to watch. And yet I understood exactly what way both of them were coming from. He loves her. He saved her. But just before that, she ripped his heart out and smooshed it. That's tough. Yeah, I totally agree. I thought both of their reactions was totally on point of what a person would do. Like, she has incredible remorse of this thing she did in anger, and he's, nope, I'm done. I'm over this yo-yo roller coaster. We are not good for each other. And he still cares about her because he checked in on her when she was sleeping, but he just doesn't want to interact I don't think she's that remorseful. Like she can't even get out that she didn't even mean for it to happen because she totally did. But I don't know. So do you think she was crying just because of everything she went through? Or what's your thoughts on that? Pretty much everything just happened at once. Pretty much she just broke both of her ties to her closest people at the carnival. And then her mother just died and tried to kill her with her. And obviously just there's just a lot of stress right now. So she's just rather upset. See, I think she is remorseful. I think she is genuinely sorry for what she did. I think it's just one of those things of being young and acting really in the moment and responding directly. It's that you hurt me, I'll hurt you mentality that someone in that age can and would have. And you add that with what she was going through, like losing, feeling like she's losing her mind or her mother was losing her mind. I think she is genuinely remorseful and as part of it. But I also think the other things that she has no tether. She has no base. Jonesy for what he was, she could always count on him. And she's regretting 
that she she burned that bridge as well as she burned it. And uh, in her most frightened moment, she's got nothing. So I think she's just like all of that hitting her, the stress of everything with her mom, but then also all the, the bits before and after. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, I totally think she's remorseful and whether she's remorseful because she's sorry that she hurt these people she loves feelings or whether she's remorseful just because for selfish reasons that she's now alone because of what she did. I'm a little teetery on, but I think she's, she is remorseful. And to be honest, she might know, not know, like all she may know is that she feels bad and probably being able to understand the nuance of, oh, I feel bad because I did this thing, or, oh, I feel bad because I did this thing and I'm, I don't have anything left. Everything, like, it, so much has happened in such a short time to her and her life. And I think, at least with, that's my interpretation, simply because I think her performance gives credence to either way. It's open to interpretation. And that's one of the reasons why I loved her performance in this scene so much. Yeah, this scene and the screaming about her mom dying scene, both were so strong. It was such a strong Cleo Duval episode. And I agree with what you're saying about she might not be processing this yet or know what's going on. We, these characters are very much in adult world and behaving like adults, but their age that they are, their frontal lobe is still mush mush. They don't think rationally at this point yet. And mush mush is a scientific term. Obviously, Tina, I know because we're very well well versed in science, but I'm really glad you explained that for the audience because it is very much a jargon term. I also think it's sad that while like Dora May got like a big like send off that Apollonia gets nothing. Yeah, even her like skeleton is made off to be somebody else's. There's no, no kind words or memorial or anything. They're just like, yep. Here's some bones. Let's put on the show. Yeah. We got more goodbyes with Spangler and Ben's mom. I mean, just saying. So speaking of not having a goodbye, Lila is looking for loads and talks to Samson about how worried she is. Samson says he will turn up and promises to ask management about loads. We see Sophie going to her and her mom, Taylor. She finds the tarot cards and cries when she picks them up and they just blow away. Samson talks to Ben and he tells Ben he should do whatever management wants, and that is to bring management scudder. So we just had a group of kind of studying the emotion and the tone for what's the fallout in the carnival from everything that happened. Anything particularly stand out to you guys? My first note is Ben's shirt will never be this clean again. I don't know. I, I'm going again. I really hate to be negative. I just didn't <laughs> dig this so much, but I wish they would have done a little bit differently with uh, Lila because right now I just feel like she's a plot device stirring. Oh no, no I, I'm the only person that cares that Lodes isn't here when really I, I would have liked to see her but paint the picture of what her life is without him and then maybe have some of the concern. But this was just like, oh no, he's gone. And then now she's gone away. Yeah, Lila's personality is loads even after he dies. Yeah, well, and I mean, she was acting so high and mighty, right, before. So it would have been a chance to delve into her character a little bit more, especially when she's, because she just goes up to Samson and is like, hey, he's gone. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, right. But, you know, 
what does her world look like without him? And, and like maybe her trying to go and talk to her friends and they're like, oh, wait, no, you were terrible to us. Or again, just getting a sense of who she is. That would have been nice. I would have liked that. To catch up with the Justin and Iris storyline, we see them driving back from the hospital and he sees the tree from his dreams. They pull over and scope a valley and mountains right below. He declares that this will be where his new Canaan is. Iris says they will build his temple together and hug. And then later, Justin and Iris come home and Tommy is there. He tells Justin about going onto Hearst radio stations. While in the background, people are going through fan letters. Justin is clearly a big deal. Tommy asks Justin to speak privately away from Iris. Man, everybody wants to talk away from Iris. He warns Justin that people will question the car being at the ministry fire. Justin says that they will need to get to the bottom of it, especially if it's someone involved in the church. Iris then forcefully asks what that was about, and Justin just asks about his coat. Any thoughts about Justin uh, and Iris finding the tree? I think they're handful of scenes from finding the tree to that point where she's excluded paint a really good contrast to Justin has his vision it's his alone and she when they find the trees yeah we're going to build your temple and it's still like rah rah but then going into in their home and she's outside of the room and kind of being excluded that maybe all is not well in their relationship and what does that look like is that a case that she's seeing things for what they are or Justin's okay you're not gonna I'm not going to be partnering anymore. I've got this. I picked up on Iris feeling excluded a little bit when they find the tree and Justin's, I will, this is my new Canaan. I will build, you know, my temple here. And she felt compelled to like, we'll build it together. Me too. And I felt bad for Iris in that moment. And then also, again, she gets asked out of the room. She is feeling excluded and is being excluded. Yeah, I wrote down there was one one scene that really highlighted her exclusion. And that's when Tommy and Justin are talking in, I think, Justin's bedroom. We see Tommy in the light and then Justin in the mirror and he's all covered in shadow. And they're talking about bringing the arsonist to Justin to, to justice. And then Iris walks in and then Tommy immediately seems like suspicious of her and also to me it seems like tommy is now justin's manager or something i don't know yeah and he was absolutely putting iris in her place when she refused he refused to answer her and just ignored her and was like where's my coat okay woman get my coat like this isn't your place anymore to be involved in everything i'm now a level above you so from this scene, do you guys think Tommy 100% thinks it's Iris now? I don't think he 100% suspects her, but I think he at least does suspect her. See, I don't even know if it's like a suspicion directly. I just look up like they both have this light bulb. Oh, Iris can be the scapegoat. Ding. So I don't think either of them really technically want justice as much as they want this to go away and Tommy wants to be famous and Justin wants to have more followers. Yeah, that makes sense. So in the carnival, we get a couple of smaller scenes. Libby decides to get drunk 
And then she goes to talk to Sophie and sees that Sophie is missing. We then get a shot of Felix listening to a fight in the car that he's very invested in. He gets disturbed by Rita Sue looking for Sophie. Rita Sue's wondering, should we ask management? And Felix says, yeah, go ask management. So, yeah, just a couple of little scenes. Okay, the Rita Sue Felix thing, if that isn't defined marriage, I don't know what that's. <laughs> I felt so bad, Felix. He just gave me. And Rita was just like talking about it. And he's like, oh, like just completely <laughs> um, full of blinders on. And, and he misses the, the fight. Oh, I feel bad for him. That was such a cute scene. And I think they both did great at making it look natural. I, I do too. They play very complicated, layered characters. and But their, their chemistry, even when they're doing something light like this, or when it gets dark, and they really balance each other backtracking and going back to Sophie so she's gone and if we need to edit this that's fine but we want to talk about where we think she might have gone or save it for later do you have theories of where you think she might have gone I'm curious what your thoughts were I I wouldn't be surprised if she just started walking in a direction with no aim in mind like she has no friends no family no purpose I, I think it's one of those things of when the kid runs away from home, but then they don't have a plan. I think that's her. I think she is out there with no rhyme or reason and just flowing in the wind. Yeah, that would make sense. I agree. What do you guys think Libby was going to say to Sophie? I think she wants to tell Sophie that she's sorry about her mom and then perhaps talk things out, but she's not there. So it's not like she gets a chance to. Yeah, I think Libby has such a soft, big heart. I feel like it's bygones be bygones. I'm going to be here for you. And then just nothing, you know? Yeah, I think they were going to, Libby was trying to get super drunk to be brave to go talk things out. Because as we've seen previously, they have a pattern of talking things out before. And I think they would have done it again if Sophie was around. So in the next scene, we find out more about the blood, the blue blood. At the radio station, Justin and Tommy are there. We see a man, the man who put the ancient text on the light backs waiting for Justin. He calls Justin the archer. Justin's like, what? And then at that moment, he cuts Justin's hand in the same place he got cut in his dream. And in anger, Justin takes him to the fiery sky tree world and demands to know what he's talking about. Apparently, Justin needs to kill Scatter to receive the divine blood. Any thoughts on this new information we get? I thought it was cool that Justin's getting information that, like, Justin thought he knew everything. And then this comes along and it's, oh, I understand. Because... There's not a lot of people, I guess, there's anybody in his world that can tell him more than what he already knows. So I appreciated the scene and how they played it. Yeah, in a way, it's good because, well, Ben has had management who could tell him things about, tell him about avatars and stuff. But Dustin really hasn't had someone who could share the knowledge with and can inform him of things. But now he's finally found someone. So it kind of evens up the playing field a little bit. Yeah, the only thing that I didn't quite get is Justin telling the guy to, I think it was run or 
sleep. And I was like, buddy, you want this guy around. Make him your minion. Don't banish him. He would make a great member of staff. Yep. This guy is so sweaty, though. Oh, so sweaty. And he's not like he's out in the field doing anything. Nope. He was just a scrapbooker. He had availability. Scrapbooker. <laughs> so then, in the carnival storyline... We see that Ben has broken into the Knights of Templar building to find information. But a Knight of Templar goes back in after forgetting something. He finds Ben going through papers. Ben threatens his life to find out about Scudder. Scudder and one other feller showed up and got chummy with the chaplain and sold a bunch of holy books. The chaplain ultimately went mad and is locked up. Samson is giving a spiel to the carnies to go looking for Sophie. They aren't going to leave without her. And then Lila asks, what about loads? And Samson kind of stammers and tries to cover her up. Yeah, yeah, I was just about to get to that. And look for loads because no one's seen him. So to go back to uh, Ben finding out information about his dad. Did you guys have anything that stood out or registered for that guy? Not so much. I don't get the, I don't know. Maybe it does make sense. He doesn't trust management, so he's trying to figure things out for his own, on his own. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't like the scene so much, but I didn't. And I'm still trying to figure out why. I feel the other man that was with Scudder was probably the man that we saw in the last scene, because that man gave Justin the gospel. And then when Justin opened the gospel, there's Scudder's name in it. So I think that's a... Quick connection you can do. Ooh, I did not pick up on that at all. So now I want to know how those two became friends. I like the idea of them being friends. Like, go out to the bar, play some hoops. Anything about that quick scene with Samson talking to everyone in the carnival to look for Sophie? I guess what struck me about that is that it was so impersonal, maybe on purpose. In the past, it felt like everyone was a family and you'd see all the familiar faces. This, I didn't feel as much like it was Samson cares, but I didn't get the whole everyone's invested and worried about her. But maybe that's just because of like the change in things between Jonesy and Sophie or something like that. Yeah, the only thing that really bothered me about this scene is I think Samson would have been smoother at calling out both Sophie and Lodes. He's just too smart to not cover his tracks, especially since we saw him talking to the cops earlier and being really smooth at telling lies. I think he would have been much better at that than what we saw. Yeah, I agree with that. And then afterwards, Lila is just glaring at him, which makes me feel like maybe... She's on to him. She maybe suspects something is wrong. Yeah, because he's kind of been dismissing her all day. To be fair to Samson, he's had a busy day. So we are wrapping up the episode by going back to the radio station. Justin is giving a sermon, and we hear some tech people talk about how he's somehow broadcasting at 10,000 watts when the transmitter was just rated for 5,000. In a prison, a guard is listening to a sermon, and a prisoner hears Justin calls to him. You are his archangel. Justin comes home and goes to go into Iris's room, but it is locked. He stands there for a moment, and then in his own room, he combs his hair and rips off a piece of skin. 
and keeps ripping off skin until you see Ben's face under his. The preacher asks to himself about Ben, who are you? And the final shot is a close-up of Ben driving at night. So it seems like Justin is now starting to recruit disciples through the radio station. Yeah, I mean, cool. I mean, like, I guess for me, like, I know he has all this power and able to, like, recruit from anywhere, but I thought it would be much cooler to recruit from inside his little station. Like, he did it, like, with the mental institution where he's, okay, my psychiatrist is now my writer of memoirs and (laughs) manifesto. You know, pulling from his existing resources. That's all. I'm just saying he didn't have to outsource. But he needs people with certain skills, though. But he reached out to a guy in prison, Tana. What kind of skills could he have if he got caught? I mean, he could recruit from within and outsource. Oh, I see. So making it a a competitive (laughs) application. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. And maybe it's just the whole episode. They're so, I don't know. It just didn't feel like a lot of familiar faces. And maybe it was just how they paired him up this episode. I don't know. The whisper transmission was super creepy, though. Yeah, whisper transmission was super creepy. Okay, also going to the the face peel at the end, they actually had a thing for it in the DVD extras. This, they actually did practical. And what they basically did was they made a mold of Clancy Brown's head, and then they put it on Nick Stahl, and that let let Nick Stahl peel it off of himself. That's always a really nice uh, gag that I always like watching. I think it's really cool. I think what bothered me is his shoulders. I kept looking at the shoulders. And I'm like, there is so much padding on those shoulders. Yeah, Clancy Brown is quite conveniently a much larger man than Nick Stahl. I will say it did look cool, but I just don't get the point of that scene. Like, he's seen Nick in his dreams already. Or Nick, he's seen Ben in his dreams already. He doesn't need this like face peely off thing i don't know i think the point behind it was employee retention fetus and a jar man need a job (laughs) this was his back i think maybe it was just to indicate that his opposite is advancing in their mission maybe okay give us a real theory fine i'll accept it (laughs) Before we talk about who your favorite character was in this episode, did you guys have general thoughts of this episode? Is meh like a thought? (laughs) I don't know. I just, I had higher hopes and we've seen some amazing episode openers, fantastic interactions between cast well-written dialogue and acting and in this episode i i didn't feel anything came together so well they tried to put a lot of information all in at once the pairings of, of people didn't have the same chemistry and it just it had i don't know they're like we have a hundred little things to address we're gonna do all in this episode and it just didn't flow for me when i watched it tana do you have overarching thoughts on this guy i kind of agree well, I'm not saying I don't like the episode. It's just that it's just a lot of like new information, important information too at once. And I would have preferred it to be paced out more. 
though I get why it seems really rushed because when this season was renewed, it was originally renewed for 16 episodes. And then at a later date, they switched it to 12. So then they had to like smush four more episodes into the 12. So it seems stuffed a little, but I guess it makes do. Yeah, I think I wouldn't mind if season two is paced faster than season one. But my complaint was so much of the new information was delivered by monologue, not us seeing things happen. It was just like spiel after spiel. Like we didn't get the amazing cinematography we did in this. It was just the the way it was produced was the antithesis of how the last season went, which is the last season allowed the story to unfold. And this was like, no, we've got to tell you the whole story right now. <laughs> we've got a lot to do. Keep up. It's still, I, mean, I still enjoyed it. It just was probably like my least favorite episode I've seen so far. I think the scene with Sophie and the fire was an amazing scene. How they did that was beautiful. Cleo Duvall's acting was amazing. That moment was fabulous, but everything else paled in comparison in this episode to me. So with all the spiels and all the monologues, did you have a favorite character? I don't know. I don't really have a favorite character for this one, but I think I'm just going to go for Sophie because of how bad I feel for her. Yeah, it was pretty heartbreaking for her this episode. Yeah, it's going to be Sophie for me too. She carried the episode. Like I'm I'm going through and even thinking about the minor characters that were featured and just none of them stood out. I think my favorite character this episode was Samson. It was nice to see him back in the fold again and in play. I think I especially liked the scene with Samson and Ben kind of disposing of Lode's body and how factual Samson was about everything. Ugh, this is just, this isn't fair, but this is the way it is. It was nice seeing him interacting with characters again and not just trying to one-up Loads. Actually, that's a good point. Loads is my favorite character in this episode. In this episode, we actually have like a timestamp, like where we, we know where we are in the year. And that is November 1st. How do we know that? Uh, we know that from the Casper Flynn boxing match that Felix is listening to. Also, it's like right after Day of the Dead. Oh, okay. That's cool how they had him listening to an actual boxing match. This concludes our wrap-up, the premiere of Season 2 of Carnival. I'm Monica. I'm Jen. And I'm Tana. And I hope you enjoyed listening to our first foray into Season 2. Please come back and join us next week when we discuss season two, episode two, which is Alamogordo, New Mexico. If you ever want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at threecarniespodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.